Hi everyone, this is Dave Newbert, Marketing Director for Eagle Eye Power Solutions, and welcome to our podcast, DC Power Hour, the show where we will discuss everything related to, you guessed it, critical DC power solutions. So charge up, power on, or do whatever it takes to get yourself excited for the episode of DC Power Hour. So welcome back to another episode of DC Power Hour. This will be part two of the battery chemistry episodes from a couple weeks ago. So we'll go ahead and jump right back into the conversation. I definitely have some thoughts on flow batteries. And the fundamental issue with the flow battery is the pumping systems. Those pumping systems fail. And because of chemical characteristics of the electrolyte and the pump, components themselves. They don't meet the reliability standard that I would normally expect in critical applications. Unless you had some means of redundant pumps and means to switch them because you have to pump that molten salt. And that's really the problem right there is moving the molten salt where the Ambry battery, there is no electrolyte movement. It's captured between the two layers of the calcium and the antimony. It's it's a molten salt battery, but it's not a flow battery. The flow battery is the pumping system. You've got controls. You've got, it's like a flywheel system. Everybody says a flywheel is a very simple device. It has thousands of electronic components that any individual component fails, that flywheel fails. The same thing happens with a flow battery. The reliability of the energy storage device itself. A lead-acid battery, there's no thousands of electronics to fail unless it's in the charging or the discharging, the, the inverter. Those components fail, yeah, but you better design very reliable components. The battery itself is very reliable if you take care of it the way you should. Same with nickel zinc. It's a reliable energy storage system. Just treat it right and do the right thing with it, and you're fine. The flow battery, I can't see it ever making a major impact. Maybe in an industrial plant or somewhere that it might be applicable, but not really in the really big market for energy storage. I think with flow batteries, we've come a long way. There's still a lot of development to be done on those. Uh, And by the way, there's a a zinc flow battery as well, or a zinc-based flow battery manufactured by a company out of Vancouver, BC. But the big issue to me for the flow batteries is the fact that, like a lot of other technologies, they require a bit of time to come up to, to power output or energy. They're ideal if you don't have to have an instantaneous response. The real advantage of flow is that once you determine what your capacity needs to be, uh, what your actual KW capacity needs to be, you can maintain that KW for longer or shorter periods of time by the amount of electrolyte that you have in storage to pump through the system. Like Al, I see the flywheels as sort of a, they're a concept that really, it looks good on paper, but it's hard to realize in, in reality. Flywheels, of course, are going to produce an instantaneous energy once you have a utility failure, but they're not going to give you 
power for a long period of time. I think the most that I've seen out of any flywheel application is about a 90-second runtime. And for the amount of initial capital outlay for the for the flywheel system and the power to maintain the flywheels in motion, the maintenance required and all of that, there are better economic solutions. Let me just put it that way. And similar to the flow batteries, you've got fuel cells. Fuel cells are a really good long-term power potential or energy potential, I should say. But uh, again, they're slow to come up. It takes a while to, to really get a fuel cell up to efficiency. As long as you can feed them the required fuel, whether it's hydrogen or whatever the, the medium is, up to the maximum life of the membrane. But again, if you need instantaneous power, that's not your solution. Hey, Dan. Yes, sir. That was a very good point on fuel cells that you made. The life of the membrane, as you're well aware, you know, back in the day, American Power Conversion developed a fuel cell energy storage solution for data centers. I remember it well. Yep. I worked on it with a bunch of guys from our R&D group and mm-hmm. Colding Denmark. It didn't go well because, number one, the data center guys were hard set against high-pressure hydrogen tanks being in their data center. And we found out very quickly that those PAM cells have to be replaced periodically because they're poisoned by the atmospheric air that you need when you feed a fuel cell. When you feed a fuel cell, you feed it hydrogen and you feed it air. So the air, unless you're pumping pure oxygen into it, nobody wants pure oxygen tanks in their environment either. So you use atmospheric air, and the atmospheric air poisons the membranes to where you have to periodically replace the membranes. And if you stick a fuel cell system in an enclosed environment like a room, and it starts discharging, it consumes the oxygen in the room. You better not go in that room because you might pass out from lack of oxygen. So there are a lot of things about different systems that, Most people are not aware of, and they think, oh, fuel cell, that's the answer to everything. It's not. It can never be the answer to everything. A lead-acid battery is not going to oxygen-starve the environment that's surrounding it. Fuel cell definitely can do that. A large system can starve the oxygen inside of a facility. Lessons learned the hard way. Well, we all know that the electrical grid is becoming less reliable for one reason or another. Excuse this pun, but it's being overutilized. And especially with all these electric vehicles coming online, we're going to run out of, not so much run out of power, but I think that the power interruptions and brownouts are going to increase. We really need to be looking at something, I think, that can be used like a lead-acid battery, where when you switch your UPS or your telecom load or whatever onto battery. It's instantaneous. And a lot of these technologies, as you rightly say, you know, the the run-up time, the start-up time, probably it's not going to not going to crack it. So you need something to bridge that bridge that interruption. So I don't see anything out there at the moment that's 
was going to do that, except her old friends uh, let us last it in Nickel Cabin. Let me throw that around and then uh, what, what's your thoughts on that? No break transfer. I'll t- I'll pick that one up, Alan, to start with, because it's it's something actually Dan and I have dis- discussed. Substations in particular, and the data center a little bit, or depending on uh, how the system's configured, the substations continually use the uh, battery in order to supply the peak loads for switching. And then they go back down to a more stable load. Um, the, and the problem you have, if you have a battery that's designed for energy storage, and it, like the zinc manganese one is, it does. It simply you have to way oversize it in order to be able to achieve these peak loads. That's another thing we have. To, something we have to consider. But you say there's nothing other than a lead acid. Well, I think there may be. It all depends on how short the peak loads are. Super caps. There are battery manufacturers. Australia, I believe, is one of them, where they're actually incorporating super caps into lead acid batteries to handle these peak loads. In other words, to stop the battery going into, but if you have very short peak loads, in order to stop the battery going into discharge, you actually support that peak load by the capacitor. Again, do I know much about it? No, enough. What I've read is that people are working on it. It sounds like another potential for some of these engineering challenges we have in meeting the load requirements. What you're really discussing is a hybrid system in the real world, regardless of whether it's super caps and lead acid or some other technologies. Uh, there have been some discussions in the past about a hybrid zinc-based system. One of the things I think the general public doesn't really understand about lead-acid batteries is in order for a lead-acid battery to produce the power electrochemically, the electrolyte actually has to penetrate the active material to create the ionic exchange within the battery. And initially, that's a relatively inefficient procedure. It takes a little time for a lead-acid battery really to come up to power, not anything like what uh, something like flow battery or a fuel cell would require, but you're talking about several seconds there where you potentially have a, well, there's no potentially to it. You do have a dip in the in the power output of the battery. It's typically referred to as the coup de foie. And most electrochemical systems have some effect of coup de foie to them. One of the interesting things about the nickel-zinc technology is that because of the way the electrodes interact with the electrolyte, you don't have to wait for penetration of the electrolyte into the active material in order to be able to begin producing power. Uh, Essentially, the electrolyte in a nickel battery, we use potassium hydroxides. It's basically dirty water. All it does is allows the ion flow from positive to negative plate and, and back again. Not having to penetrate the plate, the coup de foie in a nickel zinc battery in particular, this is one I'm probably most familiar with, uh, you're talking about milliseconds. And typically, whatever capacitance is in the electronics themselves 
virtually all electronics have some sort of capacitance in them to, to help them bridge minor irregularities in the power input. And the capacitors are able to handle these microsecond delays in power output. Now, the downside to that power output is the fact that in the nickel zinc case, it's relatively short duration. As I said, ideally 15 minutes or less. But if you take that and hybridize it with something like the zinc manganese dioxide battery, which has a, as you say, George, you, you have to massively oversize the battery in order to meet the power requirements, but it's a very, very good energy battery. If you take something like the nickel zinc and use that as your primary to get you through basically whatever sag you have in the power, you get the uh, nickel zinc to do that and then transition basically to the uh, zinc manganese dioxide for the long duration discharge. You can have a very efficient system by correctly sizing the zinc manganese dioxide battery and correctly sizing the nickel zinc battery, be able to handle the power requirement initially and then also the energy requirement as you move forward. Now, this is just one example of a hybridized solution there are others out there, and I'm sure there's a lot of experimentation on how these things can be applied. A lot of people are looking as, at supercaps as that initial discharge, whether they're inside a lead-acid battery or a standalone energy storage system. Uh, they use the supercaps to get them through the discharge, and then you go on the uh, whatever the secondary energy storage system is in order to maintain the power output. Where we get into some issues here, Al talked about UL9548 earlier, just to toss out a couple of code issues here. NFPA855, any electrochemical storage system, and now they've expanded 855 to cover other energy storage technologies much more broadly. But in 855, you're limited to the amount of power in the energy storage system that you can put in any one single fire containment area. And so there are going to be repercussions for energy storage selection going forward based on the requirements of, of NFPA 855. And I always sort of thought in the back of my head that NFPA and uh, International Code Council standards were basically a North American thing. But in recent discussions with people in Asia and Europe, they pay very close attention to what uh, the NFPA and ICC recommend. If we have something in NFPA 855 here, the people in Southeast Asia are paying very close attention to that and are modeling that, their energy storage solution. So you're going to see some changes we move forward in other countries based on what's going on here in the United States. But one of the particular points in 855 is how little energy you're allowed to store in super caps or lithium batteries, sodium batteries, some of these other technologies that are out there where nickel zinc, nickel cadmium, lead acid, some of the existing well-known technologies, they have basically an unlimited capacity in a single fire containment area. It's going to change the landscape a bit over a period of time as the codes require con compliance with 855, UL 9540, UL 9540A, and some of these other codes. As they take effect, things are going to have to change. I totally agree with you, Dan, 100%. I, you know, I'm glad you brought up the, the idea of the hybrid battery system. Problem is that you end up, for instance, working with two different manufacturers, obviously competing for business. 
don't always want to cooperate as well as they could do. So you end up with a third party having to do it. And then if you have to comply with the NFPA standards on any of the UL standards and some of the extensive testing that becomes, that has typically not been part of an integration company's work. You know, they, they have taken the the package, the individual packages from the, the various vendors and simply bolted them together. The, the most you had to meet was the National Electric Code, but that's all changing now. So do you think we're even going to see a change in how these energy storage systems are going to be built, even back to some of the basic ones, like as something for a substation? Well, I, I think so, definitely. I'm not quite as pessimistic as you are about the integration, because now particularly on newly created products, electrochemical or whatever, virtually all of these now have to have that UL9540A test procedure run on them and have a test report that's acceptable in order to be able to be used in a UL9540 application. The the difference being 9540A is a test method to determine the propensity of a battery or a a storage device to propagate fire or explosion from one cell to another, from one cabinet to another, whatever. UL9540 is a standard that has to be applied if you're using a grid-tied type device, okay, whether it's peak shaving, energy storage, frequency regulation, whatever the technology is being used for. If it's going to be attached to the grid in any manner, it has to to go through UL9540. Sort of associated standards. Now we're moving away from the old UL1778 listing for UPS battery cabinets. Now lead acid, nickel cadmium, and some of these other technologies. If you have run through the UL1973 and you're compliant or listed with UL1973, that's adequate in place of the UL9548. So having either 9540A or UL1973 listing makes it much easier to integrate these technologies for an individual. Now, if you have somebody that's in the business and knowledgeable and you pick two items that are shall we say, sort of like in nature, just as an example, the nickel zinc and the zinc manganese dioxide, both of which already meet the UL9540 test requirement, in some cases are listed to UL1973. It makes it much easier for an integrator. He doesn't have to necessarily fight the codes and standards battle so much as he just has to produce documents that allow him to create a hazard mitigation analysis as required by both the International Code Council, International Fire Code 2021, and NFPA 855, and by by proxy, NFPA 1. So the integration is going to become easier from a codes and standards aspect. And if we as manufacturers, and I'll raise my hand here, if we can properly work with other manufacturers to integrate these solutions, a partnership can be created where these technologies could be brought together by a third-party integrator and harmonized very easily. I hope it is that way. It's just I'm I'm not totally convinced yet. Just a note for our listeners that the the latest or last uh, October, I guess, edition of uh, Eagle Eye Newsletter, I wrote a piece on uh, various uh, codes and standards affecting stationary batteries. So 
that might be a good reference for somebody. I don't know. We're probably going to do a, I'm going to do a round of, you know, the last word type thing. Probably think about wrapping this up, starting with you, Dan. You know, there's a lot of things we haven't talked about. I'd love to do another podcast because we haven't looked at the charging side of these various batteries. But anyway, so last word, what are your thoughts about this whole discussion? Well, in Dan's comments about, you know, systems integrators, especially when you're integrating something like a super cap system with a, an energy storage battery, those super caps have an incredible amount of stored energy in them, and they significantly raise the arc flash hazard of the system when you integrate it with the lead acid. I know Dan knows exactly how much short circuit current every one of his cells has when it's configured into a battery string. And that information is used to calculate the short circuit current levels, the arc flash, and the selective coordination of the whole DC system. And if you throw together another source of extreme amount of short-term energy, like a super cap, and you have a fault, all of Dan's calculations are not right because you just put something on top of everything he did, and that becomes a hazard to the user. So systems integrators, I think that's one of the biggest failures I see in the industries, especially with lithium, is these systems integrators don't know what they're doing. The lithium battery manufacturer himself is the probably the worst integrator because he doesn't understand the external environment that well. So when companies that, large companies, take these lithium cells and they integrate them and they're experts in, in integration, I'm not going to name any names, but they do it very well and they do it safely. But you take these fly-by-night companies that want to be systems integrator, they they want to jump on the federal tax dollar dole for alternative green energy and get all the tax credits and uh, money and sell this equipment that they put together. And all of a sudden, it's not working. It's exploding. There's people hurt. That is a big issue. So system integration, super caps, you better be careful. I tell you that right now because they are not the answer to the coupe de coup. And fuel cells have the same problem as your lead acid battery or even a lithium ion. There, There is this sag, and it all depends on the application, how you apply it. For UPSs, we put in caps on the load side of the battery. Not super caps, but just right through in the inverter DC bus. If we put super caps in there, we risk damaging our inverter components. All kinds of things happen because of that increased short circuit current of those super caps. So if you see a UPS with a super cap DC bus, that thing is going to be very expensive. Because also going to be basically a bomb hunting a place yeah. to blow up. <laughs> yeah. So that's it. So, Integration of energy storage and uh, 
using the right type of energy storage for the applications, that's the key to our future. And with a lot of insight from people who have more knowledge, it helps people make an, an informed decision about what am I looking at? What is this person telling me? He's telling me this is the greatest thing since sliced bread, but what about this? What about this? Don't be afraid to ask questions. You have to ask questions to get knowledge. So if you just sit there and you listen and you say, oh, this is right, this is right, you're never going to gain any knowledge. You're just being force-fed what that person wants to tell you about that particular system. Whether it works or not, who knows? So, Dan, over to you. Last sure. thoughts? Yeah, as Al said, the integrators are probably, shall we say, the short circuit or the short end of circuit, I should say. You have to have people that are qualified, and there seem to be very few of them. It's interesting to me that you gain wisdom by knowledge. You, you gain wisdom by failing. Yeah, there's no two ways around it. Experience counts for an awful lot in this game. The powers that be seem to want to push us towards an electrified world without adequate thought, without any experience. It's up to us in the industry, basically, to, to educate those that are coming into the industry. I think in the IEEE Energy Storage and Stationary Battery Committee, very encouraged because I'm seeing a lot of young faces come in and participate and learn from the those of us, uh, the gray hairs in the group. I think there's a lot to be said for the future of energy storage. We haven't even thought about yet that's going to impact this, but I think this is one of those areas where you have to keep an open mind and open eyes and learn all you can before you jump into anything. Lithium, to me, is an answer, but I think it's an answer to a question that really hasn't been asked yet. I think there are other technologies that are better for individual applications. They try to make lithium a one-size-fits-all, one like we said. It's not. Any more than any one of these technologies is a one-size-fits-all. Let, let it lie for our next conversation. So, George, I know you like having the last word, so where you go? Me have the last word? Well, I, all I can do, to be perfectly honest, is totally agree with our two colleagues. In fact, it was very comforting to hear their comments. It has substantiated a couple of things I've been talking about over the last few weeks. I hope there's a lot of people here this podcast. David, <laughs> I think we've covered a lot of material in the, in this time. I'll agree with Alan, but the next step we have to do is talk about the charging of them and uh, how they're maintained. Because, you know, I'll just throw a little point out that most of the new nickel batteries don't ever want to be 100% charged. Neither actually does a lithium, as I've discovered. Lithium batteries would much prefer to be sitting at 80% charge. It might be a lot safer if we were able to do it that way. It's not just the batteries themselves, it's how we, we've talked about the integration, but it's also about the charging, that's part of the integration. Have we actually got the chargers that are right for the job today yet? You know? So that could be another, when we do it, that will be another very interesting podcast. Well, thanks, guys. I think it's been interesting. Thank you, Al. And thank you, Dan. Don't forget that any of our listeners have any comments, like us to talk about 
some other aspects of the battery industry, you know, just uh, contact Eagle Eye. Also, if you need help in battery selection for a particular application that's based upon, you know, current battery technologies, coming, don't be backward and coming forward and contact uh, Eagle Eye between us and our consultants and our advisors. We do have a little bit of experience. So once again, thank you. And it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, guys. Yeah, experience. I was kind of trying to do the math. I think we have probably over 150 years of experience right here on this podcast. So, I mean, just terrific source of insights. Thanks, gentlemen. And uh, lead heads forever. I think that's that's the theme I got. So, Well, you're better off being a lead head at the moment than a cheese head. Yeah, very true, Alan. Very uh, true. Hey, I, I resent that, <laughs> Alan. <laughs> Yeah, the on Packers that will recover. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. Okay. okay. Thank you. Thanks, David. Okay, Take we'll, care. Take care, thanks, guys. Jack. We'll be in touch. We hope you can join us next time. And in the meantime, if you have any questions for the Battery Blarney Duo or anything else you want us to discuss in next week's episode, please email us at info at eepowersolutions.com. Thanks again for listening. Talk to you then.